Welcome to the Gas Street Podcast. Our vision as a church is to be light for the city. We really hope you enjoy this message. We are in a series. If you've been following with us for the last little while, you will know that. Uh, And we're looking at the church, the church. And the series title is called, I'm Here For It. That was kind of a new, a new little phrase to me. It was one of those phrases that when you hear it, suddenly I was aware that I'm quite old. You know, you know what I mean? Like, oh, I've never heard that before. And clearly it is already in the public domain and I haven't heard it, I must be old. But I am here for it. I am here for it today and I hope you are too. And so we're in the next part of our series looking at what it means to be church, what it means to be church. And if I could sum up this message uh, with one thing, with one, one little phrase, it would be this very well-quoted phrase. You may well have heard of it before. God loves you the way that you are, but He loves you too much to leave you that way. God loves you the way that you are, but He loves you too much to leave you that way. God loves you just as you are. He loves you as you are right now. With all your imperfection, He loves you. But He loves you so much. He is crazy about you, so crazy about you that He wants to bring about transformation in your life. Which reminds me of a story about Tim's eyebrows. Oh yes, I know, that's an obvious connection, isn't it? And many of you will know, Tim is in the room, he knows I'm gonna share this, just for, you know, just so you know. Many of you know that when Tim was 19, he wrote this song, Here I Am to Worship. Uh, And he wrote this song uh, in his bedroom at university, just lovely, sweet, innocent 19-year-old Tim just pouring out his love song to Jesus. And he had no idea at that moment that this song would just explode, that it would become one of the most sung songs around the world. And the popularity of this song led to invitations to lead worship across the globe. And those invitations led to the opportunity to record an album. And the opportunity to record an album led to a photo shoot. Now this is kind of alien territory for Tim. And you may or may not know that I have actually had a crush on Tim since I was 12 years old. To me, literally, Tim is the best looking man in the whole world. I mean, he is, right? Yeah, you agree with me. Sorry, that might be awkward if you're married, but he is. He is the most handsome guy that I have ever laid eyes on. That dimple smile, it it literally, it used to like cause tingles down my spine, it still does, it still does. I can honestly tell you that it does. I don't know what he said, it was probably something a little bit rude. And I loved Tim's face, I just loved it the way that it was, but during this photo shoot, something happened. We're coming back to the photo shoot. Something happened, transformation took place that today I am forever grateful for. You see, this glamorous American stylist who was overseeing this photo shoot, she'd picked out this outfit for Tim, Uh, she'd had his hair kind of cut and styled, and then she looked at Tim in the mirror And she kind of scrunched up her glamorous face and she said these immortal, life-changing words to Tim. She said, you know, Tim, let me give you a little piece of advice. You see your eyebrows? They are meant to be neighbors, not roommates. (laughs) 
Yes, she did. Yes, she did. And with one wax strip, Tim's monobrow was gone forever. Never to return. And I have kept on her good work. I should tell you that. God loves you the way that you are, but He loves you too much to leave you that way. <laughs> and you know what? As a church, as a church, our desire is to create a community that is built on the truth that is held within that little pithy phrase. To establish a community that holds this tension between the two halves of that statement. A church where anyone could walk through that front door, whether that's into one of our groups or a Sunday like this or onto a team or uh, to stay and play or love your neighbour or whatever it might be. And what happens is that they arrive already loved. They arrive already accepted. They are met with compassion and grace and they leave maybe over a series of time authentically changed surrendered to the will of God, not because anyone has coerced them or guilt-tripped them or shamed them or manipulated them in any way, but because within this environment of acceptance and compassion, they're able to experience a personal conviction through the Holy Spirit towards repentance, through the Word of God, towards transformation. To be a church, that's the vision to be a church that is full of imperfect people on a journey, an imperfect church that lovingly draws people towards a perfect God. Ordinary, aren't we, really? Ordinary, broken jars of clay, that's how Paul describes it. Jars of clay, broken, cracked. And yet within us, we hold this treasure, this treasure, this incredible treasure that is the message of the gospel. God loves you the way that you are, but He loves you too much to leave you that way. Sounds amazing, doesn't it? But you know, creating that kind of community, it is challenging. Human beings are challenging complicated and holding that tension between the two halves of that statement is not easy because it is so easy in any church community like this to sort of place uh, more emphasis, to overemphasize one half and just ignore the other. We can end up focusing so much on acceptance that we have no vision to see anyone changed or transformed or we focus solely on sin so that there becomes no room for grace and compassion. But you know, a gospel-shaped church has to be both. It has to be both. A gospel-shaped church will hold those two halves in tension. And that is what we are longing to do here because that is exactly what Jesus did. It's what He did. It's what He did. We're gonna jump into the Bible now. Luke chapter five, verse 27. I think the words are gonna come up on the screen so you can follow along or open up your Bibles if you've got them in front of you just to remind ourselves of this, this encounter, this Jesus encounter that we read in the Gospels, Luke 5, 27. After this, 
Whenever we see an after this, don't you wanna know kind of what happened? So after this, so Jesus has just come from healing the paralyzed man. You know the one where the friends lower him through the roof. And Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are so offended that he has said that. And then the man who was paralyzed gets up and walks healed. So after this, that's what's happened. Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me. Jesus said to him. And so Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Now eating, just so you know, in that culture, eating was a symbol of friendship, a symbol of acceptance, of belonging. So if you ate with somebody, the signal to the rest of the society was, I accept this person. So Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he chose to attend this banquet that Levi and these other tax collectors had thrown for him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have come to call the righteous. Sorry, I have not come to call, very important that I correct that. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And what we need to understand about Levi's life is that it was seriously complicated, like seriously complicated. Being a tax collector, is probably not that much fun now. I don't know, if you collect taxes for a living, you can tell me afterwards. But being a tax collector at that time in that place was really the equivalent to being a traitor. It, it basically equated to almost total social exclusion, apart from other tax collectors and other what would be considered fairly dodgy people at that particular time. You see, if you're a tax collector like Levi, he was despised by his own people and his life would have been characterized by, by greed, by deceit and by his own total lack of integrity alongside isolation and guilt and suspicion and fear, fear of what his own people might do to him. And yet Jesus sees him. Jesus knows all of this about him and he says to Levi, come. Come and hang out with me. Leave all of that behind. You know, I could have put, picked any, any numerous other one of Jesus' encounters with people in the Bible. The woman at the well, Zacchaeus, the woman caught in the act of adultery, Mary Magdalene, any one of his disciples. And each encounter would demonstrate for us the very same thing. The extent to which God shows grace and compassion, the extent to which Jesus welcomes in imperfect people and the mess that surrounds their lives. And then he offers them a challenge. And the challenge is always to leave the old behind and to step towards greater freedom. Freedom to walk away from the sin that has been entangling and messing up their lives and to walk into the fullness of life and purpose that is the will of God for their lives. In fact, the message translation has Jesus saying it like this, I'm here inviting outsiders, not insiders. An invitation to a changed life, changed inside and out. This is what Jesus does over and over again. 
He did it then in the Gospels. He's done it all through history and he's doing it today. That's what he does over and over again. I love you just as you are. I love you in all the mess and imperfection of your life, but I love you so much that I don't wanna leave you in it. Come and hang out with me. Let me heal you, let me change you, leave it behind. This is what he's done in my life. This is what he does in my life over and over again. I've shared some of my story before at church in, in different contexts, but just to remind you, for me, I was raised in a Christian home. My parents are here, they're fabulous believers. And like many teenagers, I hit the point where I kind of needed to figure things out for myself. And I realised that I was more interested in boys, quite frankly, than I was in God. And that led me to make a whole load of different choices and really to sort of walk away from my faith in an internal way. I showed up to church and I kind of externally put on a fairly good show, but internally, I was as far away from God as I had ever been. My faith was kind of hanging in the balance. I was making choices that were not good for me and I felt this emptiness inside. I got to about 21 and really I, I didn't know who I was anymore. I'd been trying to fill this longing in my heart with stuff that just wasn't working. And I can remember at that moment thinking, I know what the answer is. I know what the key is to unlock my heart, it's Jesus. And so I made this step back towards Him. And what I discovered is that Jesus loved me just as I was, in all my mess, in all the mistakes that I had made, but He loved me too much to leave me that way. And you know, one of the things that I felt as I came back to God was this horrible weight of shame. When I thought about all the mistakes that I'd made, all the choices that I'd made that I knew didn't honour God, I just felt this heavy weight of shame. And you know, one of the central reasons that people doubt that God loves them as they are. Maybe you're watching this, maybe you're sitting here and you know that you're thinking, mm, maybe that person, not me. One of the central reasons that people doubt the truth of the first half of that statement, it's this word shame. It's this word shame. And you know, often I have ended up talking about shame up here. And as I was preparing this, I was like, Lord, really? Do you want me to talk about shame again? Do you not think they've kind of heard it all? And, and actually, you know what? I make no apologies for talking about shame again because in my experience, shame is one of the central tactics of the enemy to keep people out of relationship with him, out of church and out of the purpose for their life. Shame says, I'm not good enough. Shame says, if you really knew me, you wouldn't wanna come close. Shame says, I don't deserve to be here. Shame says, I don't deserve to be doing this, to be in this setting, to be in this group. And you know, in virtually every gospel encounter that we read in the Bible, including the one that we've just read with Levi, Jesus encounters these people and the overwhelming burden that they are carrying is shame. That's the burden that they carry, that the shame of exclusion, the shame of their sin, the shame of their lifestyle, the shame of a broken relationship, whatever it might be, they're carrying shame. 
You know, many of you know that um, we are in the process of adopting uh, a beautiful little baby girl. And recently, I had the opportunity of meeting her birth parents for the very first time. And I was pretty apprehensive about meeting them, as you can imagine. And I feel, I felt, I feel hugely protective over our little girl. And I wasn't sure if when I met them, I, I, I might feel quite hostile and defensive kind of in their company. But when the time came for this meeting to take place, the only way I can describe it is that God filled my heart with this overwhelming sense of empathy towards them. It's the only way I can describe it. It wasn't a a human response. And, And I knew that despite the choices that they had made, they were carrying a huge amount of pain and shame. And grief, you know, grief for what they were going through at the same time as what we were journeying through. And I looked at them in that moment and I was immediately reminded that it was their genes that had made this beautiful little baby that was to become my daughter. And you know, there is a huge amount of shame for parents who have had children removed. Maybe you have had some experience of that in some way, shape or form. Even if the removal is justifiable, there's so much shame. And I could tell when we met that they were expecting hostility, judgment even. But I found that all I wanted to do in that moment was to dignify them with kindness and warmth. And you know, something in the atmosphere in that room changed in that moment. The atmosphere shifted. I I can't explain it. It was like this extraordinary meeting. There was something extraordinary happening that God was in the room. It's the only way I can describe it. And it was like God was there by His Spirit showing up for each of us in our own way. And when it came to say goodbye to them at the end of the meeting, I knew that most likely I would never get this opportunity again. And on instinct, I just threw my arms around them both. And there were tears. It, it, It was a beautiful and painful moment. But I know, I know the extent to which God has filled my life with His grace. And I knew that any lesser response in that moment would make a mockery of the faith that I've put in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, so many people They walk into church and they're carrying shame. Whether it's shame that comes in the form of self-loathing or self-hatred or insecurity, shame in the form of anxiety or depression, whether it's a broken relationship or failure or abuse, it's all this burden of shame. And you know, the worst thing about shame is, is what it does is it creates a disconnection. That's what it does. And it's so, it's so unhelpful within the context of church. You know, if you come into a church context carrying shame, it can be hard just to get through the door, just to make it through the door, whether that's literally or digitally. And you know, the reason that that sense of disconnection 
comes is because shame convinces us that we're the only one. We are literally the only one that is feeling the way that we are feeling. And so we feel totally alone within it. And so we turn up to church or a church context and, and we're ready with kind of the polished version of ourselves, you know, the church ready version of ourselves. Because vulnerability is not an option when we're carrying the burden of shame. Because if we let the guard down, even just for a moment, then everyone will see we're not perfect. We haven't got all our crap together, you know? And one of the biggest misunderstandings we can have about our relationship with God is that God is somehow longing for us to have it all together. You know, that God's greatest desire for us is perfection. God's greatest desire for us is not perfection. God's greatest desire for us is connection. He is longing to connect with us. It is not a surprise to God that you are not perfect. It is not a surprise to God that there are parts of your life that are messy and complicated. There are parts of your life that are covered in shame. It is not a surprise to God. You know, holiness is not the absence of sin and mess. Holiness is holiness. It's when we're willing to surrender the whole of ourselves to Him, surrender everything that we have to Him, nothing hidden, nothing held back. And so if we want to be a church that emulates Jesus, that lives out this truth, if we wanna be a church where people come and they are in no doubt that God loves them the way that they are, then we have to create an environment where shame doesn't stand a chance. We have to, that's the kind of church we wanna be. And if we wanna do that, that means we have to place a high value on vulnerability and empathy. We have to press in to those two things because in an environment where empathy and vulnerability have a high value, shame is just cracked open. It is exposed for what it is. We have to create an environment which allows people to be real, a culture that allows people to bring life's hardest emotions, life's biggest questions, an environment that is not phased by the mess and the complexity of humanity. It is not easy. It is not easy. A culture that, that says, God loves you just as you are. You know, one of the biggest hindrances to creating that kind of culture, that kind of environment, is something that psychologist Susan David calls toxic positivity. Toxic positivity. And you know, toxic positivity is this interesting thing because toxic positivity is so uncomfortable with shame, with anger, with fear, with disappointment for that matter, that it has to cover it up, it has to quick, quickly, quickly, the shame, anger, disappointment, fear, quickly, let's cover it up, let's cover it up with really worthy things like thankfulness and perseverance and hopefulness. You see how problematic that can be in a church context, right? You know, once we had an email sent to us to say that this person was leaving and the reason that they wanted to leave the church is because we were too positive. We thought that was kind of interesting. You know, one of the things that actually makes this church this church, one of the things that is kind of embedded into the DNA of who we are is that we are unapologetically hopeful. 
We, we never wanna stop believing that with God, there is always more. There's, there's more healing, more freedom, more provision, more faith, more hope, more breakthrough. We believe that. Yeah, we believe that. We know that we use the word exciting a lot. We've been accused of that, we know that. But genuinely, we are really excited about what God is doing in and through this church community. <laughs> but, 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 we never want, we never want our positivity to turn toxic. We never want our hopefulness to hide the hopelessness, the pain that people feel. You see, positivity is only toxic when there's no re room to bring our pain and our shame. We always want to give permission, create space for people to express their pain. You know, Susan David, I was listening to a podcast where she was being interviewed. She tells this story. I don't believe that she is a follower of Jesus now. I don't know, but she tells this story. And in this story, she talks about when she was a child, how her dad was dying of cancer. He'd had this long battle with cancer and he was in his last weeks of, of being alive. And it was an understandably, incredibly painful time. And she describes how these people from his church had come to visit him. And after they had left, Susan went into her dad's room and she found him in floods of tears. And she said, Dad, what's the matter? And he said, oh, it's just that these friends from church, they told me that the reason that I'm dying is that I don't have enough faith. And you know, the next day, she tells the story, the next day, he phoned up the life insurance company, and they were experiencing financial difficulty at that time because he hadn't been able to work for such a long period of time. And for many years, he had been paying into this life insurance policy. But because of the comment that his friends had made, in an act to sort of prove his faith in his dying days, he canceled the life insurance policy and they were left with nothing. And as she tells this story, you can hear the pain of what happened in that moment and how it impacted her life from that moment on. You see, toxic positivity cannot handle shame. It cannot handle pain. It cannot handle life's most difficult questions. It cannot handle vulnerability. It cannot handle mess or imperfection. But Jesus can. Jesus can. God loves us the way that we are, but He loves us too much to leave us that way. And that is what we build our hope on. That is where our hope is found. That's where our faith is found. That's the reason that we can be thankful. He loves us too much to leave us in our shame, to leave us in our pain. You know, I was chatting to, um, I was chatting to my mother-in-law, Annie, uh, just a week or so ago, and we were talking about how in the 90s, I was alive then, yes, how in the 90s, there was this amazing outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Some of you here in the room, others watching, you will know what I'm talking about. You will remember those days. I remember those days where the Holy Spirit was poured out in just incredible ways. It was just mind-blowing at times that there's the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit at that time. And you know, she was telling me or reminding me 
that at that time, you could walk into a meeting and the Holy Spirit was just like, let loose. And often what you would see is these respectable, middle-aged people like on the floor, howling, absolutely howling and crying and wailing, sometimes screaming, like literally screaming, often really respectable people. And a lot of people were sort of questioning what was going on. And some were saying, oh, is it demon possession? Is, is that what it is? And the pastor of the church, John Wimber, where all of this began, he said, no, no, it's not demon possession. It's pain. It's all the unexpressed pain and shame that they have had to hold onto, that they have had to hide so tightly inside. And as the Holy Spirit has come, as He has filled them, as He has met them in their pain and imperfection, He said, here's some space, let me heal you. And they could express, it was out. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It's not pretty sometimes. And we're longing that this church would be a place where healing and transformation by His Spirit through His Word, it's just a given. It's like an expectation. We walk into the room and it's like, yes, I've come here to change, to be changed by Him. That's not toxic positivity. That is hope in the gospel. We wanna be a place where it's just normal. It's just normal to see people compelled onto their knees in contrition and repentance before a holy God, where it's just standard, normal practice. A church where collectively our song is, I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And you know, this is where, this is where the gospel narrative kind of departs from the narrative of, uh, of secularism and even religiosity. You see, the secular narrative says this, you're fine just the way you are. You do you, you know, uh, this is me, and there's some good in that. Let's redefine the broken, sinful bits of who you are and let's make them central to your identity. That's the secular narrative. The religious narrative says you're broken. You're unworthy. You need to do everything that you can, everything that you can to, to get it all together, to conceal your brokenness. You need to strive your whole life to make it go away through ritual, through control, through every effort that you can make to, to make yourself better again. But you know what the gospel narrative says? The gospel narrative says, yes, there are parts of you that are broken, but He sees your brokenness. He is not intimidated by your brokenness. He looks at you with eyes of love. Bring all the broken parts to Jesus. Surrender to them to Him by faith. Repent and turn away from the old way. Let Him heal you. Let Him guide you. Let Him give you a new perspective. Let Him set your feet on a new path. And I wanna end with this. And if the band wanna come up, I'm aware that my shoelaces are undone. It's okay. I'm not gonna trip over. <laughs> I wanna end with this if the band want to start coming up. You know, I titled this talk, The Power of the Imperfect Church. And the power of the imperfect church is that God can use imperfect people like me and like you. That is the power of the imperfect church. I'll be honest, 
I, I prepared this talk like in a fog, in a haze of sleep deprivation. Honestly, I did. I even put a bit of fake tan on my face to try and make me look slightly more awake. I may look a bit too much like Donald Trump today. I don't know. <laughs> but I did, you know, I, I haven't slept much. We've got a baby. And I want to be honest and say to you, when I step off this stage, having given this talk, you know, the reality is I will most likely have to battle against feelings of shame and insecurity. You know, that, that's how it is. I've chatted to loads of people that step off the stage and they have to battle with those thoughts, those voices that come that say, who do you think you are to get up there and say that? Who do you think you are? I know that, I've done this too many times, I know how it works. And I say that not to you know, get your sympathy or anything like that, but because it is so easy to think that the people who come up here and do this, it's so easy to think that we don't struggle with stuff like that. Because you know, if, if one of the worst things about shame is that it causes disconnection, you know the other worst thing about shame is that it causes disqualification disqualification, that's what it can do. I know how that feels. I remember when I came back to God, I told you earlier, and I was full of this shame and I knew God loved me. I'd experienced in that moment that the love of the Father and I was like, I'm good. That was amazing, thank you God. I know you love me, great, God loves me. But actually what I thought was, yeah, but God can't use me. God can't use me, not after all the things that I've done. But God takes our imperfection and He shapes them into something so beautiful. That's what He does. If we let Him, if we allow, if we come with an expectation towards transformation, He wants to entrust us with that treasure in these broken, ordinary jars of clay. He wants to entrust us with that treasure. So don't ever, don't ever let the enemy make you believe that God can't use you because of your brokenness. Don't let Him allow that thought to take root. Don't ever allow the lies of the enemy to disqualify you from the life that God is calling you into. You see, the power of the imperfect church is its capacity to empathise, to look at those who don't know Jesus and say, I know how it feels. I was lost, but I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I was broken, but God is putting me back together day by day by day. That is the power of the imperfect church because we can reach an imperfect world. We're gonna stand in this room together. And if you're at home watching, I just wanna encourage you. I, I have been where you're sitting, watching church online from the other side of the screen. And for me, the temptation at this moment is to, oh, I'm done now, heard the talk, right, I'm gonna go and make my lunch or whatever. Can I implore you? I believe God wants to meet with us by His Spirit. I love that we were singing that song about the sovereign, the power of the sovereign Lord. He's moving, He's at work. And so we're gonna just allow the Holy Spirit to come. Some of you in the room, I know you've got little kids with you. Just 
If you just engage as much as you can, but God knows He sees us. You might wanna hold out your hands. You don't have to. It's just a posture, that's all it is. It's a way of saying, I want to receive. So let's just pray for a moment. Would you come Holy Spirit now? Come Holy Spirit now, fill our hearts. Fill our hearts. I wanna jump right into what I sense God is doing. I believe God is wanting to come and break the power of shame in people's lives. Shame can come in so many different forms. So many different, so many different guises. It's the same root. It's that feeling that God couldn't love me the way that I am. Would you come now, Holy Spirit, and begin to heal? Begin to minister to those broken parts, the parts of our lives that we just wanna hide away. God also wants to minister to those who feel like you are without hope. That's what you feel right now. You just feel like you're without hope. And I, I was thinking about a time um, many years ago, I was really struggling. I was really struggling to hold, hold on to hope. And I can remember I was sitting in a Christian conference and I was on the front row with my church ready face on, but feeling inside like I just wanted to be anywhere else. And I can remember the person on the stage, she was sort of preaching up a storm, you know, we can change the world, God can do anything. And all I wanted to do was just to crawl under my chair and hide. And I just, I was reminded of that moment because I think that there are people who are in the room or watching this and that's how you feel. You just feel like I am so wrung out of hope right now. Let the God of hope fill you with hope by His Spirit, come now. A friend of mine sent these verses to me. Lamentations 3.20, I will never forget this awful time. No toxic positivity there. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss yet I still dare to hope when I remember this, the faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is His faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance, therefore I will hope in Him. Come Holy Spirit, God of hope, fill your people with hope. Restore it, restore it by Your Spirit. We don't wanna have to muster it up, God. Would You do it by Your Spirit? Come, open hearts now, open our hearts to Him. Come in, Holy Spirit, heal us, restore us. <laughs> 
Thanks for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out. If you want to find out more, visit our website gastric.org or follow us on Instagram at Gastric Church.